Do you think you're broken? I think, yeah, in a way. I think my mind is, you know, kind of fried from drugs. And What about your heart? You know, in a weird way, I think going through all this stuff has kind of opened my eyes to, like, to, like, a better way of life, you know, more understanding for people. It's disgusting and it's sad and, you know, I spent his entire life trying to keep him clean and healthy and in a nice home and just to think of him sleeping, I, I knew it was gross, but I didn't realize you had roaches growing on you. like you can lead a horse to water but you can't make it yeah and it's all you can do is be there i think i've not wanted help for so long that it's hard to ask for help this you know even if i do want it yeah and it's 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 hard to say that you don't want it because it's literally all you want and but there's such a better way of life and i've seen it and i know i just gotta ask for it Hello and welcome to another edition of 41 Files from 41 Action News. We're glad to have you with us here at the 41 Files uh, podcast studio. It's a small room, so if you can fit in, we're glad to have you because there's a lot of people in here today. Uh, I'm, Sam Hartle is typically with me on 41 Files. He's here, just doesn't have a microphone. So, Sam, you can wave to the people listening to the podcast. He just waved, I promise. <laughs> uh, and the, the laugh you just heard there was 41 Action News anchor Krista Dubill sitting to my immediate right. Hi, Krista. How's it going? Hello. Good morning. So this is a, a great edition of 41 Files that we're excited about today because we have three people in studio with us. Uh, and this is a story that you're working on, Krista, that's going to air uh, after this, this podcast begins. So if you're listening to this podcast the day it comes out, it may be a few days before you're able to watch the story on television. Krista, if you would, introduce us to the people that are in studio with us. Okay. Please. So we have Kathy Costigan, who is the mother of a young man I've had the pleasure of meeting. We have Kevin O'Grady, who runs Midwest Recovery Centers here in Kansas City. And we have Henry Costigan, who is uh, 23 years old and a young man who I have gotten to know uh, fairly well during our coverage and trying putting the story together. Um, and it's a story about addiction. Mm -hmm. Specifically, the story we're going to talk about today is because there are, are obviously lots of different kinds of addiction. Today, we're talking specifically about drug addiction. I want to ask you, Krista, how you got into this story because you were this, this started uh, in a way um, with a, a social media post of yours that became pretty popular. A lot of people were responding to uh, something that happened to you just in a regular everyday walk alive kind yeah, of situation. Yeah, I, I was in a drive-thru picking up hamburgers for my family and the young man at the window, it was snowing, I remember. It was really cold and snowy. A lot of places had closed for the day. School was out. And I remember... Um, ordering food. And when he took my money, I said, oh, I'm surprised you're open. He goes, me too. And he goes, well, I'm just glad to have a job today. And I and he went back in to go take my money and get the food. And I remember thinking, oh, I don't know. I just wanted to ask more questions. And I'm in a drive through and it was weird. I don't know. And I just said, when he came back out, I'm like, well, what do you mean you're glad to have a job today? And he goes, well, I couldn't get a job because I had had um, been into drugs and gotten into trouble and no one would hire me. So I'm just thankful to have a job today. I asked him if it was drugs, but anyway, it came out, and I just remember being so moved by this guy's perspective and his challenge to try to stay clean and his reasons. He had a baby on the way, and I asked if I could post a little bit about him, and I did, and people were really moved by it. And I think because addiction is such a huge thing in our country right now, so many people struggle with it, whether they're public about it or not. And so Kevin O'Grady, turns out, was the guy who um, founded and runs the program that that young man had gone through and had success in. So I got to know Kevin. And then through that, through, through just being drawn to do this story and do more with that just chance encounter, I got to meet Henry, and I've now met Kathy. Kevin, that story has got to seem, I don't want to say run-of-the-mill, but something like that that version of that story you've heard probably more than once in your line of work. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's what we're, we're hoping people that can find in recovery is that they can get their lives back. And, and you know, we, we talk about it in, in just more of a personal recovery, kind of marveling in the ordinary. I mean, things that uh, – 
you know, uh, seem easy and run of the mill, like going to work and showing up and being a part of your family were once things that were stripped from me and I had to work really, really hard to get back. And so when they come back into our lives, it's 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 pretty powerful. So. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about your history because you're 15 years clean now. So yes. you know what these young men are facing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, personally been in recovery a long time, still something I participate in regularly in my life. And and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a serious battle. I mean, it's a day to day you know, day-to-day deal. Still 15 years later, I'm very involved. It's a huge part of my life. And I get to do it professionally too, which is certainly a treat. I love what I get to do and the people that I get to see, but it's, you know, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult for a lot of families, a lot of people. So. So we've talked about kind of one end of, of this story a little bit. And Henry, this is where I want to bring you in because you're kind of in the middle of this story and you've been very open with Krista through her reporting about this is something you're dealing with right now. Addiction is something you face and have faced now for years. You're still in the midst of uh, facing it on a regular basis. When you hear stories like Krista talks about where she started with this, is that something that, that resonates with you? Is it something that feels familiar to you? How do you respond to other people and you hear about other people dealing with the same kind of thing that you have? Um, I just, <clears throat> I, um, I really don't know. I, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm like blanking out. That's okay. Does it's it, a little bit nerve wracking. Does it feel, do, I mean, do you feel, I, I hate to use the word lonely, but does it feel more like you're not the only one dealing with this whenever you hear people in other walks of life talk about the same kind of situation? Um, I I mean, I've seen a lot of people come in and out of recovery. Um, I I do not feel alone. I feel like the only the only recovery, you know, path is with other people in recovery. I can't do it on my own. So how old are you right now, Henry? You're 23, is that right? Yeah. So how old were you the first time you were introduced to drugs? Um, I started smoking weed when I was like 14. 14 years old. Um, do you remember any of that time at all about what started it, why why that first time happened? What do you remember about that first time? Um, you know, it was actually with our neighbor in Riverside, and I, mm-hmm. I – you know, I just kind of thought it was something cool to do, and he was more than willing to to get me high. He was the same age as you, older than you? No, he was older. Kathy, and Henry's mom, is sitting over here shaking her head. Um, what What do you remember about, about that time whenever he was 14? What I remember about our neighbor um, was that he actually had sat down with me and, and told me a story of when he was young, And someone had gotten him high, and he wished that that hadn't happened to him. Mm. And so when I found out that that he had done that with Henry, I mean, I was devastated for one thing and just mad. (laughs) How long after that did you find out? Years. Years. Mm -hmm. You didn't know. I didn't know. Mm -mm. Was it Henry? Was that that first time? Was it at your neighbor's house? Was it your house? Where did it happen? It was at my neighbor's. At your neighbor's house. And then kind of where did it go from there? You still got high for quite a few years on a pretty regular basis then or? Yeah, no, I I, I actually didn't really get high after that. I did here and there and, it, and my addiction really hadn't taken off yet. But I, um, <coughs> I, we moved to Schuyler County and um, I got into like K2 and, and um, you know, I, I really didn't, I wasn't in addiction like I was, like I am now yeah. and it hadn't taken off yet. What is, what is the difference to you? You say like you are now compared to then. What, what does the difference look like? Well, um, you know, it becoming a problem hmm. in your life, it taking stuff from you, um, you know, thinking about it 24 seven and, you know, doing despicable things for it. So this is nine years now. This has been something you've battled. Do you have a memory of when it felt like it was a problem when you crossed that line from it being just something that you were doing to where now I'm an addict and this is this is why it's a problem? Yeah, totally. Um, I I remember really fondly of um, I spent I spent about a year in jail before I before I got into drugs and um, when I got out I moved back to Kansas City with my mom and. Or actually, it was with my dad, and I just started wandering around the the city, you know. And I I started smoking cocaine, started smoking crack, and it, it 
I was, I started doing things that <clears throat> no one had like shown me how to do, or you know, I just like started doing all this stuff, and um, it, it was it was miserable, you know. I I stole from my my mom and dad, and and I um, it was it was really uh, a crossover point, and I really had no idea what I was getting into. How would you describe, and this could be a podcast in itself, a totally different topic almost, but how would you describe the the drug scene in Kansas City to people that aren't familiar or are familiar with it? How would you describe it? Um, it's if you, you can get whatever you want, it's there. You know, a lot of people don't see it, but it's everywhere. Um, if you know, I mean, like, I've just, since I started doing that over in Northeast, um, I, I've never had any trouble finding drugs. Kevin, you think that's a fair statement that you can get whatever you want, wherever, whenever you want it in Kansas City? Um, yeah, I can't speak to Kansas City specifically. I've only lived here a few years, but I've worked in a number of cities. I've grew up in my city. I mean, Augusta, Georgia. And if you're looking for it, you can find it. I, mean, I think that that's kind of the million dollar question for a lot of people is, you know, how will I know? How can right. I stop this? What right. if it's my kid? How? Why did, you know, my kid could do that? No problem. And then my kid has a serious drug problem. I mean, I came from a upper middle class family. I was a 4.0 student involved in sports. All of those things had every reason in the world to not turn into a lying, cheating, stealing, robbing drug addict. But mm. that's, you know, I mean, this is a brain disorder. When it begins to take over, it begins to take over. There's not a whole lot that's going to slow it down or take it over or and you didn't you I think I remember you telling me you didn't do crack cocaine for a long time. No. It moved on to something else pretty quickly. And I remember you telling me about how it's, at some point the weed quit working and you'd you'd have to use more and it'd be frustrating so you go to something else and then so tell me a little bit of I wanted to share that with people about how the progression of from weed to crack cocaine to what ultimately became your drug of choice. Well, um I really didn't have any like desire for anything more than weed until I until I tried something more than weed, mm-hmm. and um, I I didn't use crack for very long because I found meth and it, it you know it lasts way longer and it's the effects you mean last way longer yeah yeah the effects last way longer and it's a lot cheaper. So what were the effects for you? Like what was your draw to it in the first place? To meth. Um, you know, it's really stimulating. It makes you stay up. And I, I got to do a lot of sh- stuff that <laughs> I, um, I appreciate you censoring yourself. <laughs> I knew where you were going. <laughs> um, you got to do a lot of stuff. Go ahead. Yeah. I just got to do a lot of, you know, you know, they call it, uh, <laughs> they call it hood rat stuff with your friends. And it's, it's, it's silly and it's childish, but it was fun. Kevin just used the words lying, cheating, stealing, that kind of thing. Are those words that have all described you at one point or another? Yeah, definitely. What would you say in this this nine year time frame has been your low point? Are you are you in it now, or where where was your low point along the way? Um, I think you know, I think I look back to the lowest point being in my in the crack time and smoking crack when I was 17 and I um I was I was in one of my acquaintances apartment and I remember sleeping on the floor on the couch cushions on the floor and like roaches crawling on my on my head and shit I could feel it all over me and it was it was it was awful you know and I I gave I I was doing that to still get high and I was okay with it in the time. Mom, you reacted over there whenever he said, I mean, the idea of your son laying on the floor with roaches crawling on him does what to you? It's unimaginable. Like, I didn't know that. <laughs> so, I mean, that's just... Until right now? Yeah. It's disgusting and it's sad. And, you know, I spent his entire life trying to keep him clean and healthy and in a nice home and... Just to think of him sleeping, or, I knew it was gross, but I didn't realize you had roaches growing on you. So, so you said you were about, at that point, you were about 17, 18 years old, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Mom, that that was his lowest point. 
what did 1718 look like to you? Because you said it was years after 14 that you realized when he's describing his low point, what what are you seeing on the other end? Could you tell that it was a low point? What did you see? Yeah, that's when when my mind goes back to the lowest and the, the worst betrayal, really, that sticks out in my mind when he was doing crack and, and in the, with those people. And, yeah, it just goes – it goes back to that. And I don't know if it was maybe because it was the beginning. Not really the beginning, but the, the crossover – Maybe. Whose betrayal are you referencing there? You Henry's to me. You feel like he betrayed you? Oh, yeah. Henry, do you feel that way? Yeah. So flash forward a little bit because obviously we've got nine years here to talk about. We could spend all day recording a podcast with you, and, and we appreciate every second you're giving us. But right now you're, you're where in this journey for you? Um, I, I actually just um – I lapsed last weekend, and I I got high at a concert and and continued on to go smoke meth that, that night. That was after how long clean? Uh, about two months, and you know it's it's a lot different this time though because whenever I would relapse in the past, I would I would just go all in, you know. Yeah. I, I would I'd say bye to everybody. Well, I wouldn't say anything to anybody and just take off and you know go on. Go down the hall. Yeah, go down six month, nine month a year run, and um, it it hasn't continued on past this this last weekend, and I think I don't think I've completely regressed. Yeah. To, to to my you know full addiction, but it's like it's scary that that's still there. What triggered you this weekend? Um. Um, nothing really specific triggered me. It was just the opportunity and it was so impulsive that it, you know, I, I almost couldn't say no. Yeah. One of the things we talked about in the interview, and I remember in the room when we, somebody said, your friends who you're hanging with really does matter. And I remember they all just were like, yes, yes, yes. And I remember saying. Because you talked to, you talked to multiple. Multiple. Well, you'll see the story on May 13th, but we talked a room full of, there were three different guys who had different varying degrees in their recovery and with different addictions. And I mean, so much of the similarities are there, but when they kept, there were moments in that interview where there were multiple moments where they'd all just be like, yes, yes, yes. And, I remember you were adamant, and I've been watching the tape getting ready for the story, that the people you are around matter. And do you think that came into play when you relapsed or you lapsed? Yeah, I I, um, I knew that there would probably be weed at the concert, and, you know, I didn't take any kind of safety measures. Steps to prevent it. Yeah. I, yeah. I, and it, it just snuck up on me, you know. I, Do you regret it now? Yeah. I mean, I wish I... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I totally... Because you were at how it. many days? Because when I talked to you, you were at... What were you at? 43? I don't remember. But So you were almost two months, and one night you start over, right? Can you say how many days clean you are now? Is it... It's uh, Friday, so Saturday, so six days, five days? Yeah. So you start over. Yeah. Kevin, I want to bring you in again here because he's he's referencing things there that, that are pretty fresh and pretty in the moment as far as where he is in this step. How much of what you do in going through recovery with people like that are dealing with this on a regular basis is about recognizing triggers? It's about taking preventative measures, the thing that he said he didn't do. How much of what you do involves those kinds of things with the people you're working with? I mean, it's huge. I mean, you, you go from uh, just personal experience. I'm going to try to blend a little bit personal, a little bit professional. Sure. But you, the lifestyle when you're using and you're going to the lengths that Henry and I are talking about where you lie, cheat, steal from your family, use dirty needles, sleep on couches. I mean, you're just self-reliance is that I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to I'm going to do whatever I have to do to get my next fix. When you come into recovery, it really has to be an entire physiological overhaul of learning how to open up and talk about things, learning how to rely on other people, learning how to take feedback from from people that, you know, honestly can see you better. We all want to think that like, oh, nobody knows me or whatever it is. But when you're in a circle of people that are in recovery, there's a term that we use a lot, you know, kind of you spot it, you got it. I mean, I can see the stuff in you because I do it. 
And, you know, that's just so vital is that I have to have that accountability. I have to have people that can point things out to me that I can't see that can say, hey, man, this is a bad idea. And you really need to make sure that you don't go or bring somebody with you or, you know, whatever it is that you've got to do. I mean, some of this is... <laughs> Self-honesty is something that I have to develop, and, and it takes usually people around me that can point those things out. I mean, I didn't just wake up one day and say, I think I'm just going to start being honest and changing my life and doing the right thing. I mean, it took a lot of intervention and a lot of falling down and getting back up and a lot of people sitting with me and saying, like, you know, if you continue to do this, you're going to continue to use and be like, no, that's not me. It won't happen to me. And then it does again, and you're going, you're devastated. Your family's devastated. The people that have been working with you are devastated. But you keep getting back up and trying. It's extremely difficult. I mean, you're changing your entire mind in order to get better. I mean, that's what recovery really is. Now, most people don't just wake up one day and say, well, I'm going to stop doing this because it's really hurting me. Not how it, not how it goes. Henry, what is your biggest drive for wanting to be clean? Um, my daughter. No doubt. I've got a two-year-old daughter that, <coughs> excuse me, I haven't had much of an opportunity to <coughs> be a part of her life yet, and it's because of my drug use. I was about to say, that coming off what Kevin just said there, the, the difference between 14-year-old drug user and now 23-year-old drug user, the stakes are much different. And when you're 14 years old and you go down that road at least for either the beginning of it or for a, for a long time – you don't, you, in most cases, you're not going to have a child that you are, for lack of a better word, neglecting because of your use. Now you're 23 and do. What has this? What what does that mean to you differently when you look back on that 14 year old and realize he he wouldn't do anything that couldn't be fixed? Now you are. What's what's the difference to you? Um. Well. Yeah, just like you said, it. it I didn't really have any responsibilities at that time. Yeah, and. It was, I think I still had more of a moral compass then than I, than I do in my later addiction. And, and it's like, it's like the stakes are higher, but it really doesn't matter. You know, you'll, you'll say, I, you know, I don't care that I have a daughter. Right. And I, I just want to get high. And it's like. It's sad, but it's it's so real, and it, it'll take over you, and you'll throw everything away for it. I know you got to see her a couple times while you were clean, right? What yeah. was that like for you? Yeah, it's really good. You know, I've missed a lot of her growing up, and she's, like, talking now, and... Um, mm. And she, you know, she knows I'm her daddy, but it's, like, it's... She doesn't, I don't think she knows what that means, you know. She, she puts a name to it, but it's, it's nobody important to her in her yeah. life. Kathy, I've got to ask you about when you're talking about this, this is your granddaughter we're talking about here. Um, is it, I, I can't imagine what that must feel like to know that she maybe doesn't really know what, what daddy means in this situation and this is your son. Yeah, it's, it's painful. It's, um, I feel like he's missing out on so much and uh it's it's a messed up situation i just hope that she doesn't remember a lot of this and that he can get to a point where he can actually finally bond with her and she knows daddy because he he was always good with kids and they love him and i think that he will be when he gets into that capacity will be a great dad what's your relationship like with your granddaughter how often are you able to see her kathy i'm not Unfortunately, um, she was taken by the state, and then another grandmother has her that is the baby's mother, mm -hmm. his grandmother. And I think because of her dislike of Henry and our family, she doesn't allow me to see her. And so it it's very painful. It's it's the worst. I mean, how many how many times have you have you held her? Is it is it um, not many? Is it? Well, I was able to. I wasn't able to see her for the first seven months, although. Incredibly, I was the one that took them to the hospital when she was born. Wow. I was there when she was born. Um, 
and then then I was allowed to see her through uh, Henry's grandparents who had her for the first 15 months and they allowed me and I'm so thankful to God for them because they allowed me to spend about a year with her on and off like a couple times a week and so she got to know me so this last time that she was with Henry she had seen me although I couldn't I wasn't allowed to get out of the car she said grandma Kathy so I think that they had to be a big moment for you to hear her say that well I didn't hear it he told me later that (laughs) she said that so that made me very happy that she remembered me and hopefully they look at pictures and say this is grandma Kathy Henry I think for for listeners and I think you probably both can speak to this about how it's difficult to identify when you're not an addict. When, you, when to to hear someone say, "I'll throw everything in, including my daughter, to get high again." That's really difficult for anyone who's never struggled with it to even begin to comprehend. But when you're in the situation you're in now, and you realize how quickly you'll you'll put all the chips on the table, so to speak, including your daughter. Does it scare you? Does it make you more aware? What is it? What is knowing that make you feel that I will I will throw everything away just for a weekend of this? Um, you know, it's it's <clears throat> it's not really like a preemptive decision that you're going to give all this stuff up. Sure, but it's like it's like a feeling like you know I could get away with it. You know, I could I could have this and that, and it just doesn't work out like that. I'm betting that's probably a pretty common thing from people in recovery to think. I can I can do both. I can live this life and that one, right? Sure, absolutely. I mean, I think that there's more and more science coming out too behind it because it, it it isn't understood from an identification point because most people don't struggle with addiction in this. Well, I mean, they just you know either it's impacted somebody that they know that's on the fringes of their life, but they don't get it. Like, well, why wouldn't you just drink too or put it down or why wouldn't you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just a common answer, but. And there's, you know, the debate back and forth that I want to go, is it a disease? Is it a choice? Well, the science literally shows that it is a disease of the choices that we make. There is a there's a some sort of systematic thing in my brain and Henry's brain, you know, that uh, uh, the frontal cortex, when you make regular decisions and say, oh, this is not a good idea, something fails for us. And what happens is, is that the craving, the trigger, the, the desire, the effect that you are going to get from drugs – comes to the forefront of your mind and it literally blocks everything else out and it's like I have to do this because and you know I, I I was in high school with kids that that could smoke pot on the weekend and for them it's fun it feels good starts there with us then it becomes life itself it becomes the only thing that can make me take a breath that right. day it's the only it makes me feel whole it makes me feel alive it does something different to me than it does to a normal person and so that's what you end up chasing is it's if, if I'm not using, I feel like the walls are kind of slowly closing in on me. And it's like I just want to feel free so bad that I will it, – it's not even that I, I stand there and I weigh these two things out and say, oh, do I want to wash my life down the toilet or do I want to get hot? Oh, I don't care. I was about to say it's it. Like you just it, – it's not even a choice. It just takes over and you're – and before you know it, you wake up and you're going – these are the consequences from my action. I can't believe I did it again. It's it like, feels like your pros and cons switch is broken right. is what you're describing. I think, I think a lot of people are familiar with the idea of I can weigh this and this and I can figure that out. But it feels like you're describing a situation where that just doesn't work. Right. I and mean, it's not a lack of intelligence. It's not a lack of – I mean this is some of the stuff that we've talked about, Krista. It's not, you know, well, how do I know my kids and we're from good stock and this <laughs> and family. It doesn't discriminate. I, I work with families all the time, you know, rich, poor – uh, high class, low class, this, you know, black, white, all in between. I mean, it's in every one of them sits in front of me and they go, you know, I've got one kid that's valedictorian on his way to, you know, become a lawyer, doctor, whatever. And then we've got, you know, junior who just can't seem to figure it out. We thought it was a phase. We thought it was this. And it's just, I mean, that's kind of the million dollar question. I sit with families all the time and they're just devastated going, what did we do wrong? Should we have been stricter? Should we not have been? We should have zigged when we zagged. And sure. it's, there's, there's just no answer to it. It really is. It's like anything else. It's devastating. It's fatal. It, it, it impacts families just as much as, you know, cancer or any other disease. It comes on very, very quickly. You never see it coming. And and, uh, and it's, it's, it's tough. I think that's the part for me that's so, it's really emotional for me because I see everybody's Done. I was about to say, you've got young boys. I mean, I mean how's... I, my kids, it's different because it's, it, but there's something so personal about it when you meet that young man in the Freddy's drive through or you meet Henry, or you meet Mac, or you meet Taylor, or you meet these guys. They're just somebody's kids yeah. who just, 
messed up and then they can't control it and the mess up just keeps happening. And as a mother, I see their potential. Henry is a super smart guy. He's freaking hilarious. He's witty. He's like, he has so much potential. And for me, that's the emotional part. I've got to ask, can, Kathy and Henry, both I want to ask you, and you can both tackle this one at a time, however you'd like to. Is there a is there a jealousy there for people that aren't facing this? Do you do you look at other moms, Kathy, and go, I I wish so much this was not in our life? I don't, I don't think so. I don't really feel that way. I. <clears throat> Yeah, I just I've never thought about it like yeah. that. You know, honestly. I I was actually going to jump in because I getting to know them. It's not a jealousy thing at all. It's the hope. It's the wanting her son <laughs> to realize his potential. It's not yeah. about looking at anybody else. And I've learned that because with Mac and with Taylor and with Henry in the story that I'm doing, not a one of them is looking at anybody else going, "I wish I had that life" or "I wish I didn't have this life." They're all just wanting to do the best that they can in the circumstances they're in and reach their full potential. And from the parents, it's wanting it for their kids. It's wanting them to be happy. It's wanting them to succeed and see their full potential, to be proud of themselves, to feel like they have a place in the world, that they feel comfortable. Break, come in. I mean, tell me if I'm just Absolutely. from talking to you. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I, I want him to, I always said I want him to be happy and healthy and free and um, not to carry the guilt around with him because that's painful for me to know that he's carrying around this guilt of these bad things that he's done. And um, Henry, do you carry guilt with you? Um, I, not, I don't think I do like she thinks. Really? Yeah. That's good. <laughs> and, and what Chris was just describing there about what, what you want, would you, would you agree with that? Is that you want the best for you? Is, what, do you what do you want? Yeah, you know, I, I describe it a lot to I want to want that. And it's mm-hmm. like in addiction, you don't want anything besides drugs. And it's. Um, what would it take? I I think, you know, finding happiness outside of drugs and finding, con, you know, connections with other people. Mm-hmm. I think I uh, with drugs, you know, you isolate a lot and you're by yourself and you just want to push everybody away and, you know, and rot, you know, pretty much. But <laughs> it's, it's true. Yeah. So. 12 steps, and when I was talking to you, you were on three getting ready to go into four, and all the guys told me that four and nine are the toughest because four is when you look inward, figure out what's broken. That might be at the root of whatever you're trying to fix or suppress, Mm -hmm. and nine is about apologizing to all the people you've heard along the way. Am I remembering that right? Yeah. So you got through four, and that was a big deal for you because you'd never gotten that far in your recovery. What was four like for you? Well, I actually kind of didn't make it through. Four. Oh, I thought you got through I, it. Okay, so okay. step four and five go hand in hand. Okay. And, five is what? Uh, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact natures of our wrongs. And so step five is essentially just reading your step four to your sponsor. So I did the step four. You know, I, I wrote it all out, but mm-hmm. I didn't share it with anybody. Oh. And, I, you know, that's exactly what's happened the past couple of times when I've gotten any kind of substantial support. Amounts of sobriety is, you know, one, two, three out. Yeah. One, two, three, four out. And why do you think you didn't share it with anybody? I, you know, I, I think my, my sponsor had canceled on me once and I, you know, it was a convenient excuse not to focus on my steps yeah. anymore. And it, I just completely strayed away from it. Kevin, I, I think that any, any addict will tell you that you're never cured. This is, this is not something that, Okay, well, it, it went. I beat that. That that went away. Um, but you're sitting here today as someone who has survived it, and sitting here watching the two of you right next to each other. It's it's like what is and what can be almost right next to each other. He described wanting to not want that to find something to to replace it. What what was it for you that got you to where you're sitting right now? To where you can say. This is this was this was it. Was it one thing or was it a series of things? What was it? It's a series of things to get to the place. I mean, you know, people uh, talk about hitting your bottom and what that means. And for some people, they think, oh, you have to lose a ton of stuff or you have to go to jail or whatever it is. And uh, some of those things. But there are people out there that have way worse circumstances than me that never got clean and people that got clean without going through some of the things that I went through. It's all relative for everybody. 
People that are too young typically think they're too young to get clean. People that are too old think they're too old to get clean. People that have too much money, have too much, you know, so yeah. so, so on and so forth. But um, so, you know, for me, it was a series of events of, 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 of devastation with my family and uh, looking myself in the mirror and knowing that, like, I can't live this way anymore. And even that starts to happen a little bit, but then you still kind of fight it and think that you can beat the game and you're going to do it different this time or you're going to be able to have the best of both worlds like, like Henry talked about. And you got to ride that out for a while sometimes. And I think that's the hardest part for families is sitting back and watching. You know, you, you can tell that they've got some hope and they understand like, okay, this is killing me. But the part in their brain still hasn't gotten to the place of being willing to let go or jump all the way in or follow through or whatever it is. I mean, I don't, you know, I certainly am responsible for taking the actions. I mean, at some point it was enough for me and I was, but but the window of opportunity is very, very small. Yeah. It's, it, it opens for some people for a day, some people for a week, some people for a month. And that's why it's, you know, it's important to have a plan, to have something ready. And, and for me, it was, I, I was surrounded by a really strong group of, of guys that were in recovery. Uh, you know, I, I went through a treatment center. Similarly, I was able to begin to identify with people. I did not get it on my first run either. I tried to do kind of the you know, the, the uh, outpatient style treatment and couldn't stay clean. And they Have highly this recommended that, that uh, I go to a higher level of highly care. Highly recommended because I know I hear that all the time. We highly recommend you, you know, go to the next step or whatever. So. Right. So they highly recommended that I go to a higher level of care and, and, uh, and I was able to to get it there. But even my first couple of weeks there, I mean, I didn't do anything. I didn't work any steps. I didn't, I was lie lied to everybody about everything. I was kind of a social chameleon. And, uh, and, you know, uh, I think what a lot of people mistake a lot of times, well, if you can just get somebody clean, they'll just be happy and their life will get better and everything. And that's really not what it's like for us. I mean, you take drugs out of my life and I'm empty. So I have to fill it with something substantial. I have to find hope. I have to find connection. Yeah. I have to be a part of something. I have to have purpose in my life again. And that's what, you know, a lot of treatment and, and the 12 steps is really designed to do is I have to fill my life up with whatever it was I was chasing in my addiction. And so that is or a process from. or yeah. running yeah. from, right? I have to clean those things out. I have to, I ha- in, in, I have to identify with people that really understand the way that I think and feel, and that's where sponsorship and accountability and finding a peer group and people that you can hang out with that are positive. That's where all that stuff – and it takes time. I mean, people think like, oh, just lock them in a closet for six months and they'll come out and everything will be you know, rosy, and it's not. I mean it's scary to be in that place where you're empty and you're – you know, and you just don't know where to turn or who to turn to. So. Henry, I got to ask because – it's just watching you as he talks is kind of what I'm doing a little bit, and I can't help but do that. Um, you've talked about what you want. What do you What do you think the 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 end of this race looks like for you? Are you able to? Do you have a clear idea of what that is right now? Or are you in the too too much in the middle of it to have an idea of what the finish line looks like? Um, I don't think I can see the finish line, but I think I can see I can see a better life. My daughter and, you know, I think they say a lot in recovery that, you know, you'll be amazed before you're halfway through and um, of what you can accomplish. And, you know, because I think most addicts are, you know, people with higher potential than most normal people. And um, they, you know, they just direct it towards something they shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. So there's two things I wanted to make sure we had time for. One, I'm going to start with Kevin, then I'm going to come to you, Henry. So one of the things we talked about in the interview was Kevin said, I can't tell you how to parent, but I can tell you what I've seen work and not work over and over and over again. Can you give a couple of pointers for if, if, if a man or a woman or a mom or a dad is listening and they feel like they might be in the midst of it, a couple of pointers? And then, Henry, I want to come to you about talking to the youth that might be hearing it or the parents of the youth that might be hearing it from a person. A perspective from you as the son. So start with Kevin. Sure. I mean, that's a, that's a conversation I have with almost every parent. I sit down and say, listen, I'm not in a position to tell you what you have to do for your child or what even what you should or shouldn't do. What I can tell you is what's going to be most effective. And I think that most people get to a place where they have tried everything that they can think of to ground their kid out of addiction, to lure them out with money or prizes or whatever, or punish them or yell at them or withdraw from them or send them away and they are at their wits end. And I think that it's important to just know that, uh, 
it's really, really important to reach out to somebody, anybody, whether it's through your church, whether it's a treatments. I mean, just call and say, this is what's going on, you know, because a lot of times before the, the, the person affected can get help, the family has to be at a place where they're kind of willing to say, okay, I'm tired of trying to fix this, solve this, change this, figure out what's wrong here. I need help. And that's a lot of times the very, very start of the process. And the individual will get better as the family member gets better. Yeah, we've heard that from a lot of the people we've talked to. Yeah. Henry? Um, I really don't know. You know, it's so unique for everybody that, you know, they need different things or they feel like they need different things. I feel like I I think it's hard to identify even in myself what, what I was lacking or what I had too much yeah. of. And because, um, you know, growing up, you you get all that stuff new to you and it's just normal. You don't you don't recognize that it's not enough of something or too much of something, and it's like I I think identifying with what your needs are is mm. a big thing for. I remember you saying to me, "Ask for help." Yeah, because you said you can't do it alone. You realize that now. Yeah, that a parent that is that you were scared to go to your mom and say, "I'm I'm using I'm having a hard time with this" because you were afraid you were going to get in trouble. Mm-hmm. And you, I think at some point in our interview, you had said, I, I would have, if I could do it again, I would have asked for help earlier. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, definitely. I think, <laughs> I don't think anybody would, you know, take this life if they had the choice before it happens. Right. Um, but it's, it still comes back to like identifying what, what it is. Cause you know, when you're in the, in the midst of it, it's like, I just got to deal with it. You know, I'm, I'm just doing this, and I'm going to deal with the consequences. What What would you say to someone about identifying? You've talked about identifying what you need, and I think that's a really incredible thought and a really incredible point to make of, of identifying what you need to start filling that, that process before it's even empty. What would you say to someone about identifying uh, the threats? Because this is a situation where you said that first time happened with a neighbor – and you said you had never really had any trouble finding anything whenever you wanted it. What would you say to someone about identifying and recognizing the the threats in those situations in the midst of, of them being presented? Um, you know, sitting here just thinking about the time that I was in jail, I, I realized that my addiction had started to manifest like way before the drugs. And, you know, I, I would do – I would – you know, the reason I went to jail is because me and my friends broke into a gas station in the middle of the night and stole cigarettes. And it's like, why would you do that? You know, I spent a year in jail for that. And wow. I, I would never do that again. And it's like, I, I see that, you know, as a big part of, you know, trying to fill something, you know, trying to please my friends, you know, look cool. or, And I, um, I don't know. I mean, that sounds like a big thing. I've got, I've got a six-year-old son at home that got in trouble for something last week because he wanted to look cool in front of his friends. And, that, I mean, that that sounds like something that is is almost kind of ingrained into, I hate to say just boys, but, I mean, it, it's just ingrained in a young age, possibly to boys and girls, that, hey, I want to do this for this simple reason. And you've seen firsthand the, the threat that can come from that. Yeah, definitely. Do you think you're broken? Um. I think, yeah, in a way. I think my mind is, you know, kind of fried from drugs. And What about your heart? No, I think, you know, in a weird way, I think going through all this stuff has kind of opened my eyes to, like, to, like, a better way of life, you know, more understanding for people because I, you know, most people would see some drug addict on the corner and they're, like, you know, think it's just you know scum of the earth yeah and it's some like, guy yeah and you know i've i've been there and it's like it sucks because you know people feel that way but you you know deep down i don't know it's just it's hard you're the face i mean you're you're the voice of what these people are i mean whenever you're talking about seeing some guy on the side of the face, they all these people have faces they have voices they have in your case a daughter and I think people need to be aware of that and, and understand that that's not just some other person in some bad situation that I'm not in. Yeah, and every and there are so many. There yeah. are so many. When I posted about the boy in the drive-through, the young I say boy, drunk young man. He was young in his man. early twenties, but mm-hmm. you ha- 
so many reached out and said, we're going through the same thing. My son's going through the same thing. My grandson, my brother, my... It is so prevalent. Kevin, do you have some stats? I mean, how much are we talking about one in what? It's probably dealing with some form of addiction with someone they love or know or care about. Informally, probably one in 10. I mean, 10% of the population probably struggles with some sort of substance abuse, alcoholism, some form of it, severe, moderate. I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty widespread. So I couldn't, I mean, I knew it was out there. We've done stories on it, but meeting so many and having really, um, amazing conversations through Facebook messengers with people who've been through it or the grandmother of the boy in the drive-thru or the young man in the drive-thru. Like just, it was just, this is, these are real people. They are, they're in our community. They're struggling with their own things. They have so much potential if they can just figure it out. And so the story that we're doing on May 13th, we sit down and we talk to Kevin O'Grady about Midwest Recovery Centers and why things work and his journey. And we are in a room with three men. Mac is in uh, I say he's a little bit more experienced in life. He's a little older, and his he's um, struggled with alcohol. Mm. He'd been clean when we did our interview. For, I think I think he was on forty three days for the first time in thirty years, and he'd hit literally hit rock bottom. Was dying on the floor the day that he was sober the next day. And I know that you talked about you know struggling and having life threatening situations. And and the other young man we talked to had had I mean there were there was suicidal. There was homelessness there was and and they're having success some of them and i think henry's having success it's just you know it's going to take more steps and i and henry obviously we could we could talk seriously all day to you guys it it would be no problem at all for chris i know it would be a problem for you three but it'd be a problem (laughs) no problem at all for chris and i to sit here and ask you questions all day um but i want to ask as we as we start to kind of wrap this up maybe a little bit you just described for us this afternoon that you're, you're coming off one of those downs and just a few days ago. What does the immediate future look like for you because of that specifically? I know right now you're probably not able to see your daughter. What's the immediate future look like for you right now? Yeah, that's one thing. You know, I, I was supposed to have a visit today actually and, you know, I met with my my caseworker for her a couple of days ago and she said obviously, you know, you can't see, have visits with Rhea for, and you know, until you get clean, you know, I I lost my my house that I was staying at. I'm going to Colorado tonight to a different treatment, and I, you know, they say they say that you know relocating doesn't always necessarily help, but I think I think if I apply myself like I did here, the the immediate threats wouldn't be, you know, because here I can just call up somebody and and right be within minutes, you know, and it's i think it'll be helpful being away from everybody that i know right what does that sound like to you kathy i mean he's about to go a couple of states away are you is it difficult already to not feel like i need to hold on to him all the time what what is it what is it like for you to know he's he's about to drive away yeah i <clears throat> i struggled with that at first and but but i am um, i'm in agreement with him you know and it, it not being so easy for him to get a hold of things and I think he just needs more time away from that stuff for him to to get to a I mean he's he's even though he had the relapse I think he's he's way better this time than he ever was with relapsing and and he's I think if we could just get more time yeah. clean in between this last time and and his future I think it, it's just going to get better so I'm hopeful and and it gives me an excuse to go see the mountains to go visit him too so I'm sure. I'm I'm glad he's going there I'm grateful very grateful to the people all involved in that so um well, there's looking forward to it. There's no one in this room, there's no one who will listen to this podcast that's not going to be rooting for you. I'm curious in these situations Kevin as we wrap up here what encouragement looks like in these days after um because he's he's just gone through a, a lapse where it was a situation that he's seeing immediate repercussions from that is how challenging is it to say it's going to be okay? What what is what does encouragement look like right now? Yeah, so I think uh, for for 
for Kathy and, and Henry both, I think there's a level of the fact that he's sitting in the room right now and at least has an awareness yeah. that he has a problem. He's already statistically hit the jackpot. And you guys talked a little bit earlier about being jealous of, you know, there's a lot of moms out there that have no contact with their son. They're not even ready. They're not even ready to be ready or they're gone yeah. completely. They, you know, and so there, there's a level of it. There's always hope. If you're, you know, uh, if you're alive and certainly have the mindset of being willing to do something about it. And for a lot of people, it is a you got to fall down, you know, three, four, five times, but you got to get up six. And a lot of people, it's frustrating and it's hard and it's why can't you just get it? And wait, we went to this place and we went to that place. And it's you know, the earlier you can intervene, the higher chance you have of eventually getting it. Uh, you know, the longer you can stay in a secure environment, a lot of that stuff helps. So I think that, you know, he's absolutely right. The fact that, you know, it happened, he's able to go, whoa, I need help. That's the key. I mean, whether you actually use or you don't, the key is to continue to just say, I need help. I need support. I've got to continue to do this. And those are all the right keys to success. It's just, don't they've up. all got it. Right? Don't give up. Right. Henry, I want to give you the chance here to have, have the last word. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell us or anything that we didn't ask there about where you are now, where you've been about this journey that you want to share that you think people should know? Um, I think, you know, just just being there to to be able to help somebody is all you can do for somebody in addiction. You know, you can't force them to... You, It's like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Yeah. And it's all you can do is be there to to, to help. And I think... I think I've not wanted help for so long that it's hard to ask for help this you know even if I do want it yeah. and it's it it's it's out there so if you know if anybody anybody's struggling with this it's 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 hard to say that you don't want it because it's literally all you want and but there's such a better way of life and I've seen it and I know you know I just got to ask for it Kevin, if someone hears this and, and needs help immediately, can they call Midwest Recovery Center? What, what can someone do if, if, if they hear this right now? What can How can they act? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's the important thing to know is that there are people out there that under, whether it's a parent, it's okay to talk about, to ask questions. You're not the only one that's struggling with this. You're probably not going to figure it out on your own. Um, that absolutely, it's okay just to call, talk to somebody, get resources, find out what direction to go in. There are tons of resources here in Kansas City. Um, and uh, we'd be you know, more than happy to point you. What's the phone number if someone wants to call you guys and, and get some help? So it's, it's 816-599-7382. And you can call oftentimes. You know, Jeff and I are the owners. We have the phones our, it's to our personal cell phones. We answer it at night and say, hey, you have a conversation with us. And my wife will be thrilled about that if I had 100 <laughs> phone calls tonight. Yeah. But, uh, um, but, you know, that's what we do. We owe our lives to. We owe our lives to our mothers who called and reached out and asked questions. Uh, you know, I know Jeff does to his as well. And, and uh, you know, that's we just want to be a voice of reason. We want to let people know that it's okay and, and uh, at least at the very least point in the right direction, right direction and let you know that. You want to uh, be there. That's what he right. just said. You want to be there. Right. Chris, to remind people about your story coming up next week. So I'm still working on it. Mm -hmm. I, uh, it's so it's a lot. <laughs> powerful. I wish I could put the – we may even try to put the whole hour-long interview with the guys in the room on the web or something because it's there's so much good information, this raw and real and honest conversation, which I'm th so thankful to them for. But Absolutely. May 13th um, at 10 p.m., and then we'll have another one May 14th, the morning um, that you're on the next morning. Um, we'll have a second part to it just to kind of start the conversation in a big way. So Great. Kathy, Kevin, we we can't, and Henry especially, we can't thank you enough for being here today, seriously, uh, to to tell your story and obviously for talking to Krista too. Um, it's it's empowering. It's enlightening. It's scary. It's all the, the strongest things a person can feel uh, all wrapped in the one conversation. Henry, we wish you seriously the best of luck. I know everyone listening does too. Um, please share this this podcast. If, if you just heard Kevin talk about the one in 10 people possibly are dealing with addiction, as you listen to this edition of 41 Files, please share it on your social media platforms. Even if you don't know who you're reaching out to, you might be. Uh, so do that if you could. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.